0: And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. All right, Genesis chapter 35, resuming again in God's Word. Genesis chapter 35, we're making our way through, we're getting there. We're up to chapter 35 now, Genesis chapter 35. By way of review a little bit, let's talk about last time, verses 1 through 4 was what we looked at. Where God said to Jacob, "Arise and go to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar," and then Jacob encouraged his entire household to put away the foreign gods. And you remember some of the seeds of application for last time were things like get back to where you first met God, and then uh, today's gods rarely look like figurines. You remember I brought in those little figurines that we brought in last that I brought in last time, and then uh, one of them was exchange your filthy garments for clean. You remember that was part of the passage that he encouraged everybody to purify themselves. And then uh, number four, bury those old inferior gods already. Um, We talked about how gods in our lives, uh, sometimes we just need to bury those things. We just need to put them six feet under (laughs) and get rid of those things. So we're picking up from there. And verse 5, Genesis chapter 35, verse 5. Somebody mind reading that one. As they sojourned, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Excellent. Thank you, Lovette. There was a terror of God upon the cities around them. Why would the other cities around them be terrified when Jacob and his clan start to move from one place to another? Anybody remember? They've seen what they've done in the past. They've seen what they've done in the past. That's probably it. What was it that they had done in the past that will probably cause terror in the hearts and minds of the people of the surrounding territory? I'll mention the name of the city, Shechem. Shechem, Do you remember Shechem? (laughs) They wiped out the whole city. They wiped out everybody there. And you remember Jacob was a little concerned. I'm concerned what you kids have done, what my boys have done, because I'm concerned that the people around us will surround us, that they'll gather together, and that they will destroy us. But it seems to have had the opposite effect. The people around them, in fact, were kind of like, stay away from those guys. They're crazy. (laughs) Don't get near them. They'll kill you. And so it looks like there was a terror of God upon The cities that were all around them, they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. This indication here in verse 5 that they journeyed, this this is an introductory remark. We're moving to Bethel, all right? We're moving to Bethel, and eventually we're moving to Hebron, all right? So this is the let's get up and go language. Bethel is on the side of the Jordan that's the promised land. And up until this point, basically Jacob has been moving in that direction, but he hasn't actually made it yet. Into the promised land. Uh, regarding this terror of God upon the cities all around them, it seems that God is supernaturally protecting His people. Right? It seems that God is is providing a shield about them, if you will. In fact, that language is not uncommon. In fact, that was the language that you remember God used when He was speaking to Abram over in Genesis chapter fifteen, one. He says, "Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield." Your exceedingly great reward. God was saying to Abraham, I'll protect you. I'm going to be your shield. Would God do the same for us? I'm I'm glad to see that people are nodding. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And in fact, he does. In Psalm 1830, it's it's just one of many passages. But Psalm 1830 says he is a shield to all who trust in him. To all who trust in him, he is a shield. So God is protecting his people there just as... He offered to protect and be the protection for Abraham, just as he offers to be the shield, the protection for all of us who would trust in him. So the seat of application that I've got there, the first one to fill in the blank on your papers that you've got there, he is a shield to all who trust in him. And like I said, that's right out of the Bible. That's Psalm 1830. He is a shield to all who trust in him. Verse 6. Somebody mind reading verse 6. So Jacob came to a lust, that is, Bethel. Which is in the land of Canaan He and all the people who were with him Excellent, thank you Mike He's made it, he's in the promised land He's finally gotten back He's finally gotten back to Bethel He's finally come back to the promised land The son has returned I guess you could make an argument even that the prodigal son In in a sense has returned Jacob is back where God said This is going to be your place This is where I want you to be I want you to be in the promised land The promises require that he be in the promised land And so now he's made it back to Bethel when I say made it back to Bethel, when was he there before? Do you remember? That where the stairs are? Yeah, you're exactly right. The vision that he had of the stairway or the staircase up into heaven or the ladder up into heaven. Bethel is the place where he had the dream as he was fleeing his brother, his murderous brother. It was that place where, you know, upon leaving mom and dad and making his way to Padanaram. Aram, And it was that interim place that he came to where he ended up staying the night. He sees the vision of God. And then now he's returned back to that place. So it's within the promised land. He's back at Bethel. And in verse 7, it's interesting how in verse 6, it's called Bethel. But in verse 7, what does it say? Somebody might read in verse 7. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriela. So when he was fleeing from his brother, and he was out in that field, and he has that vision at night, and he he comes to, if you will, and he's like, wow, this is an amazing place. And he names the place Bethel, the house of God. The house of God is a location. It's a place. In his mind, this place is amazing. But now, by calling it El Bethel, what is he saying? He's saying it's something more than the place. It's the personage of the place. All right? It's the God. El is the God of Bethel, the house of God. So not is it any longer just the house of God. This place isn't just the house of God. This place is the God of the house of God. All right? So he's basically... He's attaching an importance to the location that is less about where it is as much as about who it is, all right? So by calling it El Bethel, translation would be the God of the house of God, all right? So now he, in his 20 years, has come back to this place, and in the 20 years, his adjustment of focus on what happened there isn't so much about what happened, but it's who, all right? It's not about where, but it's about who, so instead of an amazing place, it's an amazing God. And shouldn't that be how it is in our lives? We should focus on not the miracles that we look forward to as much as the one who performs the miracles. Verse 8. Somebody mind reading verse 8? Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel, under the Terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Elon. Bakuth? Sounds good to me. <laughs> All right, good job, <laughs> Sherry. All right, Elon Bakhuth. That name right there, the, those last two words that we have there, is transliteration. It's basically Hebrew, but in translating, it would be oak of weeping. All right, so a terebinth tree was often associated with as an oak tree. So the place where she the, she's buried, this place where they buried Deborah, is the oak of weeping or Elon Bakhuth. Uh, who is it that died? Yes, yes, Deborah. All right, so who is Deborah? It tells us a little bit about it right there, right? Yes. Who's nurse? Rebecca's Rebecca. nurse. Rebecca's nurse. Who's Rebecca? Mm. What? Yeah, the wife, right? It's Is it? Isaac's wife. Isaac's wife. Isaac, Isaac and Rebecca, yeah. Mm. Rachel. So who's the character <laughs> we're following right now? Jacob. It's Jacob, right? So we're following the exploits of Jacob. Right. We're following Jacob. Jacob went to Padana Ram, right? He left his mom, Rebecca. He left his dad, Isaac, in Canaan, in the Promised Land. He went to Badanaram. He goes over there. He ends up coming back with a very large family. But here we read that somebody else is in attendance with this party that we didn't know about. This person named Deborah, who was introduced to us or told to us, is Rebecca's nurse. The place that we were introduced to her originally was in chapter 24, verse 59. Somebody were reading chapter 24, verse
1: 59. They sent
0: away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. It doesn't even name her there. You see that? Deborah's not even named. The only other time we have a reference to Deborah so far has been this unnamed servant or handmaid or maiden that goes along with Rebecca. That was the first time and the last time that we saw her. And here she shows up here. Now imagine that was when Rebecca was, yes, the whole family is good to go with Rebecca following Abraham's servant to go and be a wife okay, to Isaac. So this is before she's even met Isaac. She left with her nurse, with Deborah, to go and be Isaac's bride. They come together, Rebecca gets pregnant, they have kids, they have Esau and Jacob, twin boys, you know, and remember she was like, oh, there's this fighting going on inside of me. And God says to her, you've got two nations fighting it out in your womb. And then Esau's born and then Jacob. And now you can imagine who's gonna be raising Jacob. Well, it's gonna be Rebecca, but it's also gonna be the nurse because twin boys that's going to be a handful if you have a nurse you know yeah you're going to utilize the services of the nurse as much as you can so do you suppose deborah had a, a big role in raising jacob absolutely absolutely so deborah had a big role raising jacob probably uh became very attached jacob probably became very attached to his mom's nurse right his mom's handmaiden if you will And uh, here we read of her death and her burial and somehow she seemed to be in the company of Jacob and his family. So the commentators speculate, how is this? How and when did she come to be a part of this group? A Couple pieces that you need to know. Number one, Rebecca and her nurse, you can consider them pretty much the same generation. We never hear about Rebecca's death. It seems that Rebecca probably died while Jacob was away. Remember those 20 years and Rebecca said, I'll send you word when it's better, when it's safe to come home. We don't know if she ever did. But if she did, she might have sent it by Deborah. There's a possibility that she might have taken her nurse and said, go to my father's house. You remember the way, that's where you came from too. They both came from the same place. Go back home where we both came from. That's where my son is, my favorite son. That's where Jacob is. Tell him it's safe to come home. And before they make it back, she has died. Now, there's some speculation mixed in with that because we don't know what happened. All we know is all of a sudden, Deborah is in the company of Jacob. It could be that she had a role to play in telling him, hey, it's time to go home. Your mom sent me, just like she promised she would. And then by the time they get back... Mom's died, and there's no record, no account of that. So of that same generation, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, ends up passing away. And in Jacob's mind, that's the closest connection he's had with mom in 20 years, is with the nurse with Deborah. Kind of strange. Possible? Yeah, possible. Absolute? Am I absolutely sure that's what happened? No. No, I'm not. All right. So like I said, a little bit of speculation going on there. So oak of weeping there, we have the passing away of Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, She's buried there just below Bethel. Here's a woman that obviously had some meaning in Jacob's life. You know, it's it's strange, too, to read about somebody's death when it's a female. You don't read about a whole lot of females passing away in the Bible. So it's kind of strange that you read that. And it's kind of strange that she's introduced for the first time by name at the point where she dies. <laughs> That's really uncommon in the Bible as well. Regarding the death of his mom, like I said, it's not mentioned anywhere. Uh, but we'll find out later on in chapter 49. Uh, that she is actually buried. His mom is actually buried in the same place that Abraham's buried and Sarah's buried, the cave of Machpelah. And it's before we finish Genesis, we'll see Jacob gives instructions to his kids. When I die, bury me in that same cave. And we'll also find out that Leah ends up being buried in that same cave. So it's kind of a family cave to be buried. So Deborah passes away. And then a couple things I want to mention about when somebody passes away, um, sometimes people have this warped image of God and what God's reaction is when somebody passes away, especially when it comes to the wicked. Let's say that you know somebody wicked dies, and you would think God goes, "Yes, got rid of another you know opponent or something." But it's not like that at all. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's intention, God's desires, that all would yield to Him and accept Him as the one to worship and their Savior. Psalm one sixteen verse fifteen says, "Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints." So God pays attention. It's not like He goes, "Oh, where is so and so? Oh, they died. Oh, I missed that." No, He's actually paying attention. In fact, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Another verse, Ecclesiastes chapter three verse four. For us as Christians, we, you know, sometimes we have people that say, "Oh, you don't mourn. You don't need to cry. You don't. You know, He's in a better place. She's in a better place, or whatever the case might be." Yeah, they might be in a better place. And for that, there is to be rejoicing, but there is still a time to weep and a time to mourn. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 4 tells us that. A time to weep, a time to mourn, and uh, what better time to weep and mourn than when a loved one has passed away. But Paul, when he's writing to the church in Thessalonica, he does want to make clear something, though. In fact, he starts off the passage by saying, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. And why would he say such a thing? That sounds kind of harsh because they were being ignorant of that very thing. And the thing that he didn't want them to be ignorant about is that we should not mourn as those who have no hope. So when you have a loved one that passes away, if they're a Christian, if they're a believer in God, yeah, it's a time for mourning, it's a time for weeping, but you don't need to mourn and weep like those who have no hope. It's a different kind. You're know, you going to miss them, but it's also you recognize you will be with them again because they're going to be rising up again from the dead. So we look forward to that day. So that passage that I was mentioning, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14, says this, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, that means those who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, anybody, anybody believe that? I think we all do here, right? For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. What does that mean? It means when you fill in your blanks right now, those who die in Jesus will rise again. I almost shouldn't talk quietly when I say that. I almost feel like I should raise my voice. Those who die in Jesus will rise again. That's something worth getting excited about. Uh, Paul recognized that this life, you know, for all the glory that we have to look forward to in this life, this life is a vapor All right, it's just passing by, but he recognizes as good as this life is, mm, I want to be with my God. He looks forward to the day. I want to be with my God in Philippians he starts off by saying Paul ends up saying to them you know I don't know what to choose you know because if I die I get to be with God and if I stay well I get to keep working for you and with you alright so uh, this life you can make great use of it but doesn't compare to being with God alright so looking forward to that day next one right here verse 9 somebody mind reading verse 9 after Jacob returned from Padan and God appeared to him again and blessed him excellent thank you Mike this is the sixth time the sixth time that God has appeared to Jacob. Why is he appearing again? Well, because now he's back in the promised land. Verse 10. Somebody might read that one. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriella. <laughs> Haven't we read that before? Hasn't that already happened somewhere? We did. We ran across it in chapter 32, 28. That was the first time where God said, Your name is not going to be... Jacob anymore, it's gonna be Israel. And here he's saying, Your name shall not be Jacob anymore, it's gonna be Israel. Did God forget that he already had this appearance? That he already did this, that he already said your name's gonna be changed? No, God didn't forget. Here's what's happening. What happens when God says something twice? He's reminding you the second time. (laughs) Right? So why is God giving Jacob a reminder that his name is Israel and not Jacob anymore? Because he's back in the promised land. God is reiterating, God is reappearing to Jacob, and he's reminding and reiterating those things that he last said to him before he got back to the promised land all right so here we have it as a reminder god's reminding him what's our seat of application sometimes we need god to remind us of our new identity in him that's the third one that you've got there sometimes we need god to remind us of our new identity in him and then verse 11 Verse 11 says, Also God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. Didn't we already see this before? Yes, we did, actually. This is actually the eighth time that the promises of God appears, All right, that the covenant appears, this covenant language about a land and a multitude of descendants. All right, This is the eighth time it's been mentioned, not specifically just to Jacob, but uh, Jacob included in that. It's been to Abraham It's been to Isaac, Abraham's son, and Jacob's dad, and now to Jacob. He's saying, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply is the same language that God gave to Adam back in the garden. It's the same language that God gave to Abraham when he initially called him. A nation and a company of nations, you remember God's call to Abraham, his initial call to Abraham, had to do with, and through you all the world will be blessed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's nations, plural, and here's nations, plural again. When God makes these promises, and this is the eighth time he's making this promise, what have we found out so far about God's track record in keeping his promises? hundred percent, right? God keeps his promises. So when God's saying, hey, by the way, here's the promise. He's reiterating it. Jacob's in the promised land. God says, I want to remind you that your name's been changed. I've come here to appear to you. And I'm reminding you that the covenant is continuing on from your grandfather to your dad and now to you. All right. When he says be fruitful and multiply, wait a minute. Jacob has 11 sons and at least one daughter by this time. I'm thinking, how much more fruitful can you get? He's already got at least 12 children that we know about. All right. So God in saying, be fruitful and multiply. Is he saying, have more kids? Or is it something else? The language of the verse, if you look right past that phrase, what do you see? A nation and a company of nations. What is he saying? God is saying that this promise is going to be fulfilled, not just in the short term, with you having lots of kids, but in the long term, with nations coming from you, kings coming from you. When God makes us promises, a lot of times we can see those promises, and the seeds begin to sprout of those promises in our lives in the short term. But sometimes those promises are long term as well. For example, are you saved? Are you saved right now? Yes, in the short term, God has forgiven me of my sins, I am saved. But is there a future fulfillment of that promise? Will you be saved? Are you going to heaven? Are you there yet? You're not there yet. You're going to heaven. That's future. That's another fulfillment. All right? So you're saved right now, and you're looking forward to a salvation that's still yet future. God gives a promise, and it's not uncommon for that promise to be fulfilled in the short term and fulfilled in the long term as well. That wasn't even in my notes, but (laughs) we're having fun with it. Mm All right? Uh, Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and nations... Shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. Going down to verse twelve, somebody might reading verse twelve. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and to your descendants. After you, I give this land. Excellent, thank you, Mike. So here's the promise of the land. So we've had the promise of the many descendants and the promise of the land. That's the consistent two part promise that we've been seeing all along. That was given to Abraham, his grandfather. That was given to Isaac, his father, and now given to him. A promise of descendants and a promise of land. See the application right there for that verse? Sometimes we need to be reminded of the promises ahead. Sometimes we need to be reminded of the promises ahead. Verse 13. Somebody might read it. Verse 13. And God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So let me ask you a question. 20 years God's been with Jacob and Jacob's been with God. It was 20 years ago that Jacob left his home. It was 20 years ago that Jacob met God at Bethel that first time in those 20 years that god has been with jacob and jacob has been with god has jacob been a follower of god yes yeah he's matured in his spiritual walk with god so he's been a follower of god has he been learning from god i would hope so we've seen him maturing and we've seen a spiritual maturity coming over him Uh, what do you call somebody who learns from god and follows god the word is actually disciple all right so even nowadays if you are a learner God and a follower of God. You are a disciple of God. You're a disciple. So why am I saying this? Well, I'm having a little fun with this. Then God went up from him. Who's him? It's Jacob. It's one of his disciples, right? It's one of God's disciples. So God went up from his disciple, Jacob, in the place where he talked with him. So God was having a conversation with him, and then it sounds like when the conversation was over that God went up from his disciple. Do we have a picture of that anywhere else in the Bible, that God is having a conversation with his disciples, and then he ends up leaving by going up? We do in Acts chapter 1 verse 9. In Acts chapter 1 verse 9, this is the resurrected Jesus. And the resurrected Jesus hangs out with his disciples on the earth for 40 additional days before he goes up. And what does it say in Acts chapter 1 verse 9? It says, now when he had spoken these things, there's that talking, right? He's talking with his disciples, just as we saw God here speaking with Jacob. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, who's the they? It's the disciples. While they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Just as God left Jacob here. All the way back in Genesis chapter 35, God talks with Jacob, and then God goes up and leaves his disciple, his disciple Jacob down there. We have it repeated with Jesus over in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Jesus is talking with his disciples. He goes up, and what? He goes up, and it says a cloud hid him from their sight. And the disciples are left, and they're wondering, what is this all about? And then what happens? In verse 10, it says angels appear, and angels appear to the disciples, and the angels say, why are you men looking up here? This same Jesus, who you have seen go up into heaven, will come back again in the same way you have seen him go. What is that? He's going to come back down again. We're looking forward to that day. That's still yet future for us. So just as he has gone up into heaven, what do we talk about? We talk about meeting the Lord in the air, meeting the Lord in the clouds. That's language that has to do with the way Jesus left. That's language that has to do with the way that Paul taught about the second coming of Christ, that he's going to come back again, he's going to come in the clouds, and the whole earth is going to see him, and oh, this amazing thing that we're looking forward to called the second coming. This is kind of pictured, kind of in its infancy, if you will, over here in Genesis 35, 13, when God goes up after talking with Jacob, his disciple. So I'm just having a little fun with that. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm getting a little excited. <laughs> Genesis chapter 35, verses 14 and 15. Somebody mind reading that? Jacob think and the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Yes, thank you, Lavette. So he names it Bethel again. So we've got El Bethel and Bethel being two names given for the same place. And one emphasizing the place and another one emphasizing the person of God in that place. So what do you have here? Jacob setting up a pillar. This is funny. It's the same place he set up the pillar the first time. Remember that? Uh, What happened to the pillar the first time? I don't know. It's either still standing or it's not. All right. Either it's still standing or maybe somebody knocked down or maybe a windstorm knocked down. I don't know. Uh, But here we have another pillar being set up in that same place. And Jacob sets up a pillar of stone. But this time he does something a little more. Something additional that he didn't do that last time. What does he do here? What's the additional thing he does here? Uh, Yeah, he pours a drink offering on it and he pours oil on it. All right? That may be one and the same thing or it may be two different things. This drink offering that we have right here, this is the first time that a drink offering is mentioned in the Bible. Mm this is it this is the first time all right and you remember how we talked about the first mention of something is usually pretty significant so here we have the drink offering what do we find out about drink offerings later on the drink offerings become part of the sacrificial system and the sacrificial system it's even down to the daily sacrifice that was made all right so every day the prescription was you were to take a lamb that was one year old all right and it was implied there was going to be blemish free And it was a perfect lamb. And you would would sacrifice for the community. A lamb was sacrificed in the morning and a lamb was sacrificed in the evening. And at the time of the sacrifice that you're providing the sacrifice of the lamb, you're also providing a drink offering. And the drink offering, the amounts could vary. But during this twice a day thing, the drink offering was usually quite a bit. It was usually like a liter and a half. And that was the small one. All right? That's the small drink offering. All right? So it's quite a bit. And so what ends up happening is you would provide the lamb... And we talked about burn offerings before, and we're talking about a drink offering now. In the burn offering, what was left over? Nothing. It was all burned. It was all completely given to God. It was all completely consumed, and it was all surrendered to God. There wasn't anything held back. Well, I'm going to you know, keep for myself a leg because I'm in the mood for a leg, but I'm going to burn everything else. No, it was all given to God. The drink offering is the same. Basically, what would happen is you would take the drink offering, and you would offer it to God. And is it for me? No, it's not for me. It's for God, and so you'd pour it out completely, giving it to God. Uh-huh. And I can see you guys <laughs> looking, and you're like, oh, really? Did he just yeah. do that? Yeah, there's a towel down here. I actually said it on that one. <laughs> yeah. But you would pour it out completely to God. You would fully surrender it so that there's nothing left. It's all for God. You don't hold any of it back. I love how the Bible progresses and you end up seeing similar depictions of, of the drink offering. Here's another one, and I love this story. This, this one's actually from First Chronicles chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. David, David is hiding out in a cave. He's hiding out in a cave. He is not the king in Jerusalem. It's during the time of Saul, and Saul's hunting him down, trying to kill him. And there's even weirder stuff going on. The Philistines, the enemy of Israel, have now blocked off Bethlehem which is where David is, is used to being from. I mean, that's like his stomping grounds. And he can't get back to Bethlehem. He's hiding in a cave out in the wilderness, which is desert. All right, so he's hiding in a desert cave with his men. And he says to them, he says, boy, I really like the water at Bethlehem. I wish I could have a drink of the water at Bethlehem from that well by the gate. And this story picks up from there and three of his men who become the most renowned of his men take it upon themselves and they sneak out and they sneak and they fight the Philistines and they fight their way back to the gate at Bethlehem. And they get David a drink of water from the well at the gate of Bethlehem. And then they fight their way back. And I imagine, what does that look like? I mean, it's one thing as you're fighting your way through the Philistines, and you're a trained warrior, and you've got your sword, and you're just going to town in this horrific battle. And you break through the enemy lines. You get to the well, and what happens? One guy's, what, filling up a cup? You know, they didn't have little camelback cups. They didn't have the little kind of travel mugs that, you know, keep it from... Dr- so what are you doing? Are you fighting your way back with this cup? Oh, don't spill it. I mean, what does that look like? I think it looks like a Super Bowl commercial or something. And they're fighting their way back, and they get back to David. And they take they take the water from the gate at Bethlehem, just as he was saying, wow, that, that water, and love that water. And they offer it to him. And what does he do? He takes it, and he says... I can't drink this. This, this is more precious. I mean, this is so precious. It's as precious as the blood of the men who fought to go get it. And I used to read through that passage. I was think, man, I fought my way to get you that cup of water and you're not going to drink it. No, 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 no. It's something more than that. You say, wow, I would have been pleased if he would have drank the water I brought back to him. But now I'm even more humbled and in awe that he took it and poured it out, that he offered it to God. As saying, that's precious. That's just as precious as the blood of the people who fought their way to it. And those three end up becoming the heroes of the list of names of people that are David's strongest allies and closest friends and hardest of the hardened warriors. All right, and those three are in the group of the top three, if you will. So what happens? He pours it out. Where did you find that? First Chronicles, 11. First Chronicles chapter eleven, verses fifteen through nineteen. Another place that talks about pouring out. Psalm 62, 8, Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. What is that talking about? That's talking about a God that we trust. We've come to trust God, and what do we do? We're invited to pour out our hearts to him, pour out our concerns, pour out our anxieties, pour out our fears. What is it? We trust God, and so we pour these things out to him. We're invited by the psalmist to pour over these things, to completely devote these things to him. Another one, Lamentations 219. Lamentations 219, it's a different kind of pour out your heart. It says here, arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hands toward him for the life of your young children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. We're to pour out our hearts, but what kind of pour out our hearts there? It's pouring out our hearts for people that are suffering, especially suffering children. It's a call to God's people, those followers of God, to cry out to God, to pour out our heart to God when people are in pain, when people are suffering, when people are hungry, and especially when it's the children. Another one, Psalm 22. If you're not familiar with Psalm 22, I encourage you to read it today after the study's over. Psalm 22 is a psalm you cannot help but read and go, wow, this was what was on Jesus's mind when he hung on the cross and bled for me. When he died for my sins and he bled to death while he was on the cross, this is what was on his mind. You read such verses in this as verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was on Jesus' very lips spoken when he was on the cross. Uh, How about Psalm 22, verse 8? Quote, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Remember, that was the words in the mouths of the people who stood at the foot of the cross, pointing and jeering at Jesus and saying, Hey, he thinks he's the son of God, then why doesn't God deliver him? Let's see God deliver him. Oh, you're a follower of God. You're the son of God? Where is he? Why isn't he delivering you? And we see those words in Psalm 22, 8. We see in Psalm 22, 16 and 17, For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and feet. Describing for what we see as, wow, that that's the language of crucifixion. But the strange thing is, crucifixion didn't exist when the psalmist wrote these words. It's really interesting to read Psalm 22 and recognize that's what's on Jesus' mind is he's hanging on the cross, but right in the middle of it is verse 14 where Jesus says, I am poured out like water. When he sheds his blood for us, it's all devoted to God. It's all poured out for whose benefit, not his. It's for ours. It's for our benefit. He bled and died on the cross because of the sins that we couldn't atone for. How about another place where something's poured out? day of pentecost peter he's preaching this is in acts chapter 2 in acts chapter 2 the holy spirit comes on the 120 believers who are in the upper room and they go out of the upper room and they begin to speak in different tongues and the people that are in the city at the time are from all over the known world at that time and the people from the the entire known world have different languages and they're standing around going What is that that I hear? I hear people speaking in a language that I understand. And somebody else over here goes, I hear people speaking in a language I understand. And they're recognizing that these people, these 120 people are proclaiming the works and the wonders of God and the people are drawn to this going what is this amazing thing that's happening right now and peter stands up and he preaches a sermon and you read the whole thing and it sounds like the sermon is probably only 5 minutes long and the people are laughing they're saying i know what it is they're drunk they've had too much wine and that's what peter that's where peter starts his sermon they have not had too much wine and he begins the sermon that ends up incorporating the words of joel in the book of joel chapter 2 verses 28 through 32 Peter says this is to fulfill what was spoken of in the prophet, and he's speaking of Joel chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit would be poured out. The Holy Spirit would be poured out. We have something else being poured out here. What is it? It's the Holy Spirit of God. And Peter says the prophet spoke about this a long time ago, and we are seeing the fulfillment of that today, that the Holy Spirit is being poured out. Something else being poured out? Paul philippians chapter 2 verse 17 he says yes and if i am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith i am glad and rejoice with you all paul recognized his life paul looked at his life as a drink offering as he was being poured out paul looked at it as being poured out in devotion to god and in the service of the people in philippi the believers in philippi and it wasn't something they was like, oh, what a drag. <laughs> no, when you're being poured out like that, you're being poured out for God's purposes, fully devoted to God. And then what happens in Second Timothy, as Paul's nearing the end of his life, chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, Paul says this to Timothy, the young pastor. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul saying, my life poured out, completely devoted to God. Two other places talking about things being poured out. One is the book of Revelation. Lots of passages of stuff being poured out in the book of Revelation. But let me sum it up with this. I'll say uh, what was poured out there in the book of Revelation, the wrath of God, the wrath of God. When you look at it in Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 and 10, it says, then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. I guess I should look at also Revelation 16. A lot of times in Revelation 16, but uh, verse 1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. What's being poured out there is the wrath of God. We see the wrath of God being poured out. Another place, Zechariah. Something else being poured out. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Zechariah is a prophet in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, We have the prophet saying this and i will pour on the house of david and on the inhabitants of jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication you're probably thinking okay that's kind of an obscure passage but it's a momentous passage listen to the rest then they will look on me whom they pierced yes they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn who is that and when is that going to happen This is the Jews when they finally realize we killed our Messiah. We killed the very one God sent that we were looking for, that was promised. We killed him. And what is God pouring out? Is it his wrath? It's not. Listen to what's poured out. And I will pour out on the house of David, that's Jews, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. When they finally realize that they've killed the promised Messiah, it's not wrath that God pours on them. What he pours out is grace and supplication. What is supplication? It's thanksgiving. He will pour upon them grace, and they will be thankful that what's been revealed to them, it's bad news, but it's good news in the way that God wants them to receive it. So we have all these different passages that talk about all these different things being poured out, So if I was to finish this lesson today, how would I summarize all of these things that are poured out into one final thing there on the seeds of application? It would be this. He poured everything out for you. Will you pour everything out for him? He poured everything out for you. Will you pour everything out for him? All right. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the model, the example that we see in your word as we follow this little mini study within a study about the drink offering and about something being poured out, being completely devoted to you, withholding nothing, holding nothing back for ourselves. Lord, you showed in the grandest way what that looked like when you died for our sins, when you hung on that cross and your blood was poured out for us, for our benefit. God, we thank you that you held nothing back, that you poured everything out for us. And we pray that you would help us to respond appropriately by pouring ourselves out for you, just as Paul declared and provided as an example for us, that we would look at our lives as being completely devoted to you, poured out as a drink offering for you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.